You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Activism and privateering in Moscow, Kiev, and Minsk Log4j vulnerabilities are more widespread than initially thought. U.S. Cyber Command deployed a hunt-forward team to Lithuania. CISA adds five vulnerabilities to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Jen Miller-Osborne from Palo Alto Networks discusses the findings from the Center for Digital Government Survey on getting ahead of ransomware. Grayson Milburn of Webroot and OpenText discusses OpenText's 2022 Bright Cloud Threat Report and Anonymous Leaks emails allegedly belonging to the Nauru Police Force. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Trey Hester with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. The UK Ministry of Defense describes continuing indiscriminate bombardment. Despite Russian ground operations focusing on eastern Ukraine, Missile strikes continue across the country as Russia attempts to hamper Ukrainian resupply efforts. As Russian operations have faltered, non-military targets including schools, hospitals, residential properties, and transport hubs have continued to be hit, indicating Russia's willingness to target civilian infrastructure in an attempt to weaken Ukrainian resolve. The continued targeting of key cities highlights the desire to fully control access to the Black Sea, which would enable them to control Ukraine's sea lines of communication, negatively impacting their economy. Belarus is also figuring in the war news today. The British MOD assesses Minsk's current round of military exercises as normal, but is offering some potential for Russian exploitation, perhaps in an economy of force role. Quote, Belarusian land forces have been observed deploying from garrison to the field for exercises. This is in line with seasonal norms as Belarus enters the culmination of its winter training cycle in the month of May. Russia will likely seek to inflate the threat posed to Ukraine by these exercises in order to fix Ukrainian forces to the north, preventing them from being committed to the battle for the Donbass. Deviation from normal exercise activity that could pose a threat to the allies and partners is not currently anticipated. End quote. The Washington Post has a description of the exercises, which are being described as quick reaction exercises. CyberScoop reports that the LockBit 2.0 ransomware gang, a Russophone privateering outfit, has hit the Bulgarian State Agency for Refugees under the Council of Ministers. Quote, 
All available data will be published, end quote, the gang said on its site, giving a May 9th deadline for publication, but no public ransom demand. May 9th, of course, is Russia's Victory Day holiday. Bulgaria has received somewhere in excess of 200,000 Ukrainian refugees, and Bulgaria has been aligned with Ukraine in the present war. CrowdStrike reports that pro-Ukrainian hacktivists, operating probably under some form of direction or at least inspiration from Kyiv's IT army, have been using compromised Docker images. Quote, Container and cloud-based resources are being abused to deploy disruptive tools. The use of compromised infrastructure has far-reaching consequences for organizations who may unwittingly be participating in hostile activity against Russian government, military, and civilian targets. Docker engine honeypots were compromised to execute two different Docker images targeting Russian, Belarusian, and Lithuanian websites in a denial-of-service attack. Both Docker images' target lists overlap with domains reportedly shared by the Ukraine government-backed Ukraine IT Army. The two images have been downloaded over 150,000 times, but CrowdStrike Intelligence cannot assess how many of these downloads originated from compromised infrastructure. CrowdStrike customers are protected from this threat with a CrowdStrike Falcon Cloud workload protection module. Hacktivists and privateers have chosen sides in the war, and Cyber6 Gill has a summary of how those sides are shaping up. Researchers at Sequence warn that the Log4j vulnerability may be more widespread and harder to detect than initially thought. The researchers say they, quote, found unpatched servers within our customers' digital supply chain that appear some 15 hours after the initial test results were received, end quote. U.S. Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force recently sent a team to Lithuania to assist in the country's defensive cyber operations. Cyber Command stated, quote, at the invitation of the Lithuanian government, U.S. Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force deployed a hunt-forward team to conduct defensive cyber operations alongside partner cyber forces, concluding in May. For three months, the U.S. cyber operations hunted for malicious cyber activity on key Lithuanian national defense systems and Ministry of Foreign Affairs networks alongside its allies. This was the first shared defensive cyber operation between Lithuanian cyber forces and CNMF in their country. End quote. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has added five vulnerabilities to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Two of the vulnerabilities affect Apple products, one affects Microsoft's Win32K driver, one impacts Internet Explorer, and one affects OpenSSL. Agencies are required to patch the vulnerabilities by May 25th. And finally, HackRead reports that the hacker collective Anonymous has leaked 82 gigabytes worth of emails allegedly belonging to the Nauru police force. Anonymous claims the leak is meant to expose alleged abuses committed by the police on the island, which has been used as an immigration detention center by the Australian government. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 research team recently surveyed state and local government IT leaders to get a sense for where things stand when it comes to their cybersecurity, and in particular, how they're bracing themselves against the threat of ransomware. Jen Miller Osborne is Deputy Director of Threat Intelligence with Unit 42 at Palo Alto. One of the most interesting things is that, at least to me, was the note that more and more for the the state and local organizations in special, they're getting bigger cybersecurity budgets, which for a long time has really been the biggest thing hampering their security postures is just they didn't have the kind of budgets they needed for the protections against the kind of attacks that we were facing. So it's been really heartening to see that that's changing. And now they're able to, you know, kind of put the investment into defense that they've really needed. Yeah, that is good news. And I, I had not heard that. So uh, I, I, nice to hear that uh, that recognition is actually happening. Um, what is their uh, status in, in terms of uh, how they think the ransomware threat is going to change uh, in, in the near near term? Most of them think that it, the attacks are probably going to rise. They're not expecting to necessarily see a downturn in ransomware attacks. They're actually expecting to see them ramp up over the next year and a year and a half. And that's also helping to drive both the, the budgetary increases and then the, the protections being put in place because there's the recognition that not only is that a problem now, but we're foreseeing in especially the short term, it's going to become a much larger problem. So we really need to, to get ahead of it and start putting those protections in place. Where do educational institutions stand when it comes to incident response plans? We've seen an uptick that are actually putting plans into place for a ransomware or other kind of incident response plan, which is incredibly important. One of the most difficult things uh, any organization can face going into a ransomware incident is not actually having a plan for how to respond to it or not having practiced it. You know, the last thing you want when you're struggling to restore any level of connectivity is, you know, oh, half of the people in the plan, if we had one, don't work here anymore. And no one knows who to contact now. Or we don't have an incident response vendor or plan. So you're having to figure all of that out in the heat of the moment. And that is 
that is just a level of stress that no organization needs on top of what they're already having to respond to. So seeing that that planning coming into play as well is also another really, really heartening thing to see. Yeah, one of the things uh, in this report that that uh, caught my eye was that there seems to be a pretty positive attitude among the respondents in terms of you know feeling as though they are properly prepared. I agree. I think there's a lot of education and outreach that's been done now, especially in the public space, for letting organizations, you know, educational and otherwise, know what kind of threats they're facing, you know, how ransomware operates, who they're targeting, the kind of money that they're asking for, how they're operating. And that allows for that level of, you know, user education and security staff education to understand what parts of the the kind of attack lifecycle that they have a good handle on, and then conversely, which ones they maybe don't. What did you see in terms of the kinds of things that, that they're saying they need? What, what sort of... Uh stuff would they like to to see more investment in? The two that they were the most interested in were better security for home networks for employees, which is intriguing to me. And I think we're actually going to start seeing more and more, especially as remote work is becoming kind of the, the norm, is what does that look like from a corporate protection perspective when a lot of your employees are are coming from work, you know, where do you, how do you need to extend your protection bubble? Is it a VPN or is it some things in addition to the VPN that are run on the, the home network side? And then the second component, and I think this is really true for most organizations, is more investment in being able to hire more IT and security staff. And that's particularly challenging for education because their budgets tend to be lower. And it's, you know, that's an area where a lot of people are struggling to recruit and retain staff. So it's, it, it makes sense that that's something where they really need to see some more people as well. That's Jen Miller Osborne from Palo Alto Networks Unit 42. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Researchers at OpenText recently released their 2022 Bright Cloud Threat Report, outlining security trends affecting businesses worldwide, both large and small. Grayson Milborn is Security Intelligence Director for OpenText Security Solutions. One of the things that I'm happy to see is we saw a 58% year-over-year decrease in the the net new malware that we saw at the endpoint. And so for me, like, yay, okay, like we're starting to see less 
malware maybe at the endpoints that we're protecting, but you know that's influenced again, like I said, by improvements that we're constantly trying to prevent. Right? I mean, of course, there's there's detect and respond, but if you can prevent an attack through user education, through uh, better network protection, and preventing a file transfer from getting to the actual endpoint, you know, our telemetry when it comes to malware literally comes from our our you know uh, 20 plus million endpoint uh, subscribers that that are giving us that intelligence. And so so for us, we see, hey, you know. Yes, it seems like it's going down, but then when we kind of step back a little bit, we what we really realize is that the attack surfaces have shifted and and how compromises occur doesn't always necessarily require a, a you know a delivery of of malware, though or it might and be ransomware, but that's often like the very last stage of an attack. And so, you know, we'll see compromise occur, perhaps it's just uh, remote credentials or somebody's uh, you know, uh, login information has been phished. And especially in the SMB space, we see a lot of improper management of their IT infrastructure, which isn't that surprising. You know, a recent uh, survey I read showed that of businesses with 100 or fewer employees, they average 81% of them have just one single IT resource. Uh, so, so we see a lot of focus still on attacking, even though there might be less malware. What we still see is that ransomware is, is targeting SMBs, and, and we're seeing a, a disturbing trend in that. You know, we hear about ransomware on the news. We, you know, we see these very large scale, kind of like the top of the pyramid attacks, and that's what the media focuses on because, well, these businesses are, they're, they're Fortune 500 companies. The ransom demands are often millions or tens of millions. I mean, we we saw hundred million dollar ransoms last year, and, and and but the reality is, is like those are the outliers, right? Like the the vast majority of where this problem exists is really in the SMB, and, and our data show that um, attackers are moving downstream because they know there's fewer defenses, and maybe you're not going to get that huge payout. But also in the last year, we did see again to give CISA some credit, we saw some retaliatory, coordinated multinational. Uh, attempts to disrupt and and arrest some of the members behind uh, these more advanced or, or I guess more organized uh, cybercrime organizations. So you know that's a disincentive to go after the big fish. Um, you're much more likely to garner attention and, and may risk going to jail or having your operation uh, greatly disrupted. Well, let's talk about uh, what you tracked when it comes to some of the regional differences here. That was one of the things when I was looking through the report that caught my eye. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like for me too, because it really just shows that if you invest in cybersecurity, your defenses are much better, right? And, and we see this when we look at infection rates uh, in the United States, um, or if we look at them in Japan or a lot of um, Western Europe, um, the, those regions have dramatically lower infection rates than when we look at places like South America or the Middle East or Asia. You know, we see five times as many infections coming from these regions. And, and beyond that, there's a really big difference between consumers and business endpoint devices, which um, I think really resonates because, you know, during this pandemic, I know a lot of businesses really scrambled to support the remote workforce, which ultimately led with a lot of remote users using their own personal devices to connect to corporate resources. Um, and our data shows even in highly secured places like, you know, where we saw some of the lower infection rates in the United States, when we looked at the consumer versus business split, almost everywhere, it's almost twice as many infections on a consumer device versus a business device. You know, I think that makes sense to some degree, right? Like I use my personal PC in a different way. It's, you know, my kids can use it. Uh, I use it for fun. It, you know, it's it's not a work PC. And so it, you're 
more likely to encounter risk. Whereas on my business laptop, I you know I use it for work, right? It's um it has one one purpose. Um, and right. so I think like like what we see in that data is, you know, when you look at you know, a cyber resilience posture and, and identifying your assets, you really have to look at access because, I mean, let's face it, today a lot of us are connecting, even though, I, even though I'm on my corporate laptop, you know, I'm, I'm connecting through my home internet um, into a VPN, so more secure, using two-factor, improving security. But a lot of businesses, you know, they don't go through those extra steps to uh, ensure security. You know, we think that, you know, between uh, the identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and educate, uh, those six steps really allow you to understand your business and any weaknesses it might have. And then if something bad happens, you have a plan and you're not going to be offline for for days or weeks, which can be really devastating for a business. Um, And so really, you know, I look at cyber resilience as, as sort of just resilience in general. It's, you know, it's your business's ability to defend itself and to uh, stay online. That's Grayson Milborn from OpenText Security Solutions. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Datatribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Prue Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Roll Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Falecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.